Let's turn together, please, if you don't mind, to Psalm 139. We are working together right now as a church, verse by verse, section by section through the book of Acts. Because it's summer, we sometimes take a break from our teaching through a book, our exposition, and spend some time in the Psalms. And so we're doing that again this summer. It's been kind of a funky summer. Um, We are in the midst, if you do not know, we are in the midst of a potential merger with another church a mile from here, another church in our Gospel Coalition chapter, Berlin Presbyterian, just a mile up the road. In fact, we are having another joint service with them again next week. So it's been a little bit of an odd summer for us, in many ways the oddest summer of our existence as a church. So we've been a little choppy this summer in the way that we've done some things. We've had a couple of long family dialogues during our normal teaching time. We've Uh, After next week, we'll have had a couple of joint services, but we've been able to spend some time in the Psalms this summer. And the reason we have done that is partially because we don't want the larger church family, which is traveling and all that kind of stuff during the summer, to miss our normal exposition through the book of Acts. And also because it's important for us as, as whole beings, I'll come back to that in just a moment, it's important for us as as whole beings, body and soul, to understand what it looks like to worship God in wholeness, and in, in, in healthfulness. God made us physical. God made us immaterial. The physical part of us, of course, are our, our bodies. The immaterial parts of us are our souls. God made us to live forever. The immaterial part of us has not existed forever. We did come into time and space at conception. Interestingly, this psalm clarifies that for us perhaps better than any other portion of Scripture. But now we will live for eternity. But, but not just the immaterial part of us. For because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, our very bodies will be raised up and perfected I don't know exactly what that means. I hope I'm 6'3", kind of dark complected with six-pack abs. That would be wonderful. And maybe like 40. Like, you know, like if you have abs at 40, you're, you're in good shape. So maybe that'll be my glorified body. I don't know. But my, my immaterial part will be rejoined to my physical part, and I will live forever. And as we exist in the here and now, this side of eternity, as whole beings, body and soul, we were made to to worship. You cannot help but worship. You're always, I'm always, we are always worshiping something. The challenge for us, of course, is that 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 heart of worship, that, that call to worship, is being tugged in lots of different directions. Those of us who have been credited the righteousness of Jesus by placing our faith in him still struggle to worship rightly all the time because life is hard. We struggle with the world around us. We struggle with people who are unrighteous, that trips us up 
frustrates us. We struggle with the compulsion, the desire for satisfaction. At times, we find our satisfaction in holy and righteous things. At times, we we run after, we chase after unrighteous things because we want to be thrilled. We want to find satisfaction. We struggle not only with the temptation for, for illicit or wrong satisfaction, but we struggle with the trials of life. When life does not turn out the way that we would have planned when our bodies fail us, when the prospect of death is in front of us, our very souls are sometimes shaken to their foundations. And we wonder, can we make it? And sometimes in the darkest night, when we feel the furthest from God, we wonder if he sees us and we wonder if he cares. So as whole beings created in the image of God, body and soul, as the people of God, we know that we should trust him. We know that we should treasure him but it's hard. And all of us at one time or another, and probably more accurately, many times through our lives, will go in and out of, will struggle with the conviction that that God really is for us, that he really does see us, and all of his power and all of his love are leveraged for us and will meet all of our needs. Psalm 139 is a psalm for pilgrims. You and I are are pilgriming. We are on a pilgrimage here in this world. And as we find as the people of God, that pilgrimage is is arduous. It's, It's difficult. It is not a broad path lined with palm trees and nice slushy drinks to cool us whenever we face the heat of the day. It's not always lined with champions along the way who are championing us along. It's often a treacherous path, one that is windy, one that that is marked by, by switchbacks and we can't always see our way around the corner. It seems to be uphill. It seems to be, to be pocked with with pitfalls and and roots and and things all around us. And it's not always traveled or traversed in the bright of day. It's it's often shadowed and it's, it's often loomed over by things that would threaten us. That's what our pilgrimage often feels like. This is a psalm for pilgrims. It's a psalm for the anxious. I suspect that Something like more than 50% of you are anxious today. Anxious about your jobs. Anxious about a visit with the doctor this week. Anxious about your money. Anxious about your children. Anxious about all kinds of things. It's amazing how even the, the slightest things can wrap their tentacles around us and cause anxiety. That's a psalm for the lonely. 
people who think that no one else cares and no one else understands. It's a psalm for the doubting. And do not be surprised as you make your pilgrimage, my dear friends, that you will often doubt along the way. It's a psalm for the dying, for those who face the specter of death. It's a psalm for parents who are shaping the hearts and minds of your children. It's a, it's a psalm for children who are learning to trust God, who are, who are learning to determine that God is worthy of your confidence. It's a psalm for the maligned, those who have been persecuted, those who have not been treated well for walking righteously with the one true God is a psalm for exiles in a hostile world. It's a psalm for missionaries who are going to go and bring the gospel to bear in a dark place. It's a psalm for all of us. And so with that in mind, let's read together. This is God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. David wanted this psalm put to music so that his people could sing to God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. David would have us 
first of all know today by the inspiration of the Spirit that the Lord knows the righteous. David understood this, did he not? David, the least likely of his brothers to become a chief leader, a king in Israel, became just that. But not before he lived in relative obscurity. As a shepherd boy who took care of bleeding, difficult sheep, who often had to lay his very life on the line to protect those sheep. David knew what it was like to be a shepherd, but David felt acutely, for David was a whole person, body and soul, who was relatively healthy on the inside, the immaterial part of him, because he had a lot of time to think. He was lying in the grass, listening to the sheep munch away at the grass. He could, he could look up at the night sky and consider his covenant God. This young teenager who was left alone to take care of the sheep while his brothers were away at war fighting the heathen, he could think. The covenant-keeping God who has protected his people for centuries sees me, this young shepherd boy, and I'm like a sheep. David writes not so much as a shepherd in this text, but as one who needs shepherding. David had enemies. Sometimes they were outside of his family. Tragically, sometimes they were inside of his family. Most of us have had both, right? We've had people outside of our family who don't really understand us and are even against us. And some of us, tragically, have had people even inside of our own family who are against us. Davis faced this with one of his wives, at least, and at least with one of his children. David knew what it was like to have people around him who did not think very well of him. And so a question was often raised about David, and most especially because he was the leader. He was constantly under scrutiny. Are are you really a righteous person? And is the covenant-keeping God of Israel really on your side? So David does a lot of things in this psalm, but, but the bookends of the psalm, verses 1 through 6, and then later on in verses 19 through 24, are a cry for vindication. And so he says to God, you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know when I walk in the path. You know when I lie down. You know all my ways. You know everything I'm going to speak. You're, you're with me all the time. David knew full well as, as a sheep who was being shepherded by God that there was nothing that escaped God's attention. Now, on the one hand, that's a little bit scary, right? So this is a tactic of us parents, right? We say to our kids, even if we don't see it, God sees you, right? Now, we're trying to strike a little bit of like healthy fear of God into their hearts. We're also hoping that they'll do the right thing even when we can't be with them every single moment. But it's true. It's true that God sees everything. So on the one hand, that can be a little bit frightening. For that means that that nothing we do and nothing we can say escapes God's gaze. 
even the things that we haven't even said yet or done yet. God knows the inclinations and motivations of our heart. That can be a little bit frightening because if we're being honest, we're pretty wicked a lot of the time, right? I still get angry, I still get selfish, I still get jealous, I still struggle with lust and covetousness and all these things. And yet David does not write these first six verses and then the bookend on the back end of of the psalm as though he's living in dread fear. Now why is that? So David is sort of saying, God, you know I live basically righteously. But we know from David's own experience because of Psalms like Psalm 51 where he had to repent of of adultery that David's life was far from perfect. David did not always follow God's commands. In fact, David did some really bad things that cost him, that led to death for people in his own family. David was not perfectly righteous. So he could say to God, you know on balance that basically I walk with you in faithfulness. But if even one sin can condemn us, David, like the rest of us, was marked by lots of really bad ones as well. So how could David pray for God to examine him with confidence that God, after having examined him, would not strike him dead? Because David, at least in part, knew that God would fulfill his promise to justify the unrighteous. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is given a covenant from God that one will always sit on his throne and bless Israel. And we know that one day the great son of David, far greater than David could ever conceive of being, one of the tribe of Judah, the branch of Jesse, would far outstrip David the king, for he would be perfectly righteous. And he would allow his righteousness to be credited to the unrighteous. Why was it that David could pray such prayers? Examine me. Because he knew that even though he purposed to live righteously on balance, He was still unrighteous, but God did not accept him based upon his performance. God accepted him on the basis of grace. For one day, a son of David would come and lay his life down, and all sins that God had previously partially passed over would be answered they would all be poured out on Jesus. God would mete out his wrath on Jesus for all the sins before, all the sins present, and all the sins to come. The only way that David or people like us can pray a prayer of examination from God is because we rest in the righteousness of another. We sometimes rehearse this around here but for you kids, this is kind of a cool thing. Theologians, this is, these are people who study the Bible for a profession. They get, they get paid to do it. They say that we have alien righteousness. That doesn't mean that we have like green blood coursing through our veins and one day we'll grow like five eyes and six hands. What it means is that something outside of us can be credited to us. It's, it's alien to us. 
The only reason that David could pray such a prayer, could, could talk to God this way and ask for examination is because he had the righteousness of another credited to him. So once again, as we turn to the scriptures, even though Jesus had not yet been born, would not be for around nine centuries or so, the righteousness of Jesus that can be credited to us who would be the son of David is the only basis upon which David could talk this way. So to make this personal, verse one, whenever we feel threatened by our own sin or by the sins of another, we can say to God, you have searched me and known me. Now, in some ways, this is a a subtle way of repenting too. We'll see this as we get to the end of the psalm. For upon having been searched and known, things will be revealed, right? Words we should not have said, things we should not have treasured. But we know we will not be undone. For those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, his righteousness is ours. And then what happens is, when the Lord Jesus credits his alien righteousness to us, He actually practically enables us to be righteous. So we have to be careful here. We will never be accepted based upon our own righteousness. But because we have been made righteous in Jesus, we are enabled to live righteously. And this will progressively change us over time. So there's always a purpose. There's always a design to our redemption, to our justification, to having been made righteous. And that is that we will actually become righteous over time. So, so David, who had walked with God for quite some time, it, it is curious to consider when David would have written this. We don't know. But let's say maybe it was after his adultery with Bathsheba. Let's say perhaps it was after he took a census in Israel when God told him not to do that. Let's say perhaps it was was after his son sought to, to bring an uprising against him and take over the kingdom. What if this was David as an old man? Let's just consider for a moment. David could 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 list off, could recite the bad things that he had done, especially the the big ones that God reveals to us. And one of the wonderful things about Scripture is that it doesn't whitewash the heroes, right? As you read the Old Testament in particular, the main conclusion you should come away with is not that these people were so righteous and we should live like them. That might be a peripheral goal. The main thing that we take away from reading these biographies of people like David, who was far from perfect, is that God is faithful to his people and we can trust him. But what if David wrote this as an old man? David who had had learned that life went back and forth. That sometimes he had days where he, he treasured God with all of his heart and trusted his word and obeyed his commands. But then there were days when, when he did shocking things. did over time became more righteous in his practical experience, but he knew all the while that his righteousness did not consist in his actions, but in the perfect performance of another. And this allowed him to be open with God. So I say to you as your, as your pastor and as your friend today, 
One of the great marks of maturity that the elders are watching for in our people is that you are quick to confess and quick to repent. For if you fundamentally believe that your righteousness does not consist in your own actions, but in the perfect performance of the Son of God, then you will be a repenter. This means that you will not run away from your sin. You'll be willing to confess it, even the dark, heavy stuff, because you know God does not accept you because you are perfect. God accepts you because of his perfect Son. And so you can pray verses 1 through 6 because you know God is for you in Jesus. If you struggle with self-righteousness, if you struggle with, with deflection and defensiveness, this is an indication that you do not understand imputed righteousness. You do not understand the beauty and wonder of alien righteousness. But if you understand that God accepts you solely on the basis of the righteousness of another, you will say to God, search me and know me. And you will walk away with wonder that he does not cast you off, but he continues to make you new. And so David's exclamation in verse 6 is, such knowledge that you're with me even though you know I'm wicked, it's too wonderful for me. It's high, I can't even attain to it. The Lord knows the righteous. Verses 7 through 12, David goes on to talk about this notion that the Lord is always with his people. So, so here's the idea. When you examine me, you don't cast me off. You've been cold-shouldered, right? Maybe even in the past few days. You've done something to irritate another person and, and they've cut you off at the knees. They don't even want to be in your presence anymore. This can often grow to be an, an unhealthy uh, tactic in marriages, right? Where you don't like what your spouse has done, so you, you cold shoulder them, you, you passive aggressive them. Verses 7 through 12 are the opposite of cold shouldering. They're the opposite of passive aggressive treatment. God does not fellowship with us because we are perfect, but because he is gracious and he is always with us. So David asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Even in the Old Testament, by the way, God's spirit was with his people. David prays this in Psalm 51 in his repentance over Bathsheba. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So this notion that that, that God was, was not with his people intimately in the old covenant is not true. David had a, a full sense of that. Where will I go where I can flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I take the wings of the morning, most Hebrew scholars would say that this is the eastern horizon because that's where the, the sun rises in the morning. For David, who dwelt in Israel, the, the western boundary, the western horizon, would have been the Mediterranean Sea. So what David is saying in verse 9 is, from the east to the west, where can I go that I will not be with you? Even if I am in the uttermost part of the sea, there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, verse 11, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is light with you. So this means from east to west, night and day, God is with us at all times and we can have total confidence in him. Sometimes we feel abandoned. Sometimes we, we don't think that God sees or that God cares. Sometimes we believe that life has spun so out of control that we're alone. And we have to come up with clever ways to muscle our way out of our predicaments. Feelings of abandonment, feelings of loneliness are real feelings. And by the way, when you feel those things or you're helping another person who feels those things, it does no good to tell them that those feelings don't matter. Because we are whole beings who are seeking to grow in every way up into maturity, we have to, to honor those material and immaterial parts of us. So, so the feelings are real. But just because feelings are real doesn't make them true. Do you see the difference? Feeling abandoned is a real feeling. But if God is for you and his son, those feelings are not true. And a person who is growing in immaterial health, the, the, the soul health of the worshiper, is able to distinguish between those two things over time. It is possible that you have real feelings of abandonment. It's possible that you feel so guilty for the way that you often live that you run back to old sins, that you haven't changed like you wish you had, that you're not as far along as you wish you were, that whenever you're sad or mad or scared, that you wonder if God is really with you and for you, if he even sees and if he even cares, those feelings are real. But it doesn't mean that they're true. For the final word that God has for us is the word justified. If that's his declaration over us, then we know that he will be a faithful father. As far as the east is from the west, there is, there is no place we can go, no locale, no geographical spot where he doesn't see and isn't with us. In the deepest, darkest night, when we can't even sleep in our beds because we're so anxious and we wonder if we will be okay, what this text declares to us is that we will be more than okay because God is always with us and he is for us. And he is not only with his people, verses 7 through 12, verses 13 through 16, he intimately loves us. So, verses 7 through 12, there is nowhere you can go, physically or metaphorically, that he is not there. That might scare you if it was only his gaze, if, if he was only watching you and testing you. But verses 13 through 16, they, they ramp up the notion that God not only sees us everywhere we are, but he intimately loves us. 
David says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16 almost seems like it's impossible. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God is not only with us at all times. He is for us. He loves us. He made us. We who sit here today and hear the eternal word of our covenant-keeping God, he made you with intentions of love. Sometimes you will hear people say, God is still writing your story. Now, don't be a jerk about this, but next time you hear somebody say that, turn them to Psalm 139, 16 and say, that's not true. There is not fresh ink on the pages of your life. The ink is dry, it is settled, and it needs no editing. And though each page is still being turned and the story is being unfolded to us, God knows the end from the beginning and it's going to be perfect. So my friends, you will not just be okay. You will be more than okay. Because the God of eternity who has no equals in power And the God of eternity, who is marked by perfect love, has harnessed together power and love. We call that providence. I like the word providence sometimes more than the word sovereignty because it carries with it this subtle notion of loving design. Yes, your God is sovereignly powerful, but if sovereign, powerful intentions are married together in perfect harmony with love, there's nothing to fear. So this God who is with us in every locale, who sees everything we do before we even do it, knows us and loves us with great intention. So from the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, you became a living soul. He had great intentions for you. And every day that you would ever live was written down. We have to be careful here. This does not make God responsible for evil in the sense that he's morally corrupt but it does mean that God has intentions even through evil. Sometimes we say around here that God uses sin sinlessly. The cross of Jesus is the perfect example of this. Pontius Pilate was was culpable and guilty. The Roman soldiers were, the, the Jewish religious leaders were, the people of Israel were, but, but God was sovereignly working behind something so heinously evil to bring something good. Sometimes we also say around here that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Which means that though we often err, though we often wander, though our hearts and our minds are often impure, we cannot derail God's plan. I've joked before, in a somewhat serious sense, 
that there arose this notion in evangelical Christianity over the past century and a half or so that there are different categories of God's will. There's God's perfect will, and then there's God's permissive will. I was hanging out with one of you recently, and we went through this a little bit. And, And so, like, God's perfect will is if you do everything right. Uh, you, you were dedicated at just the right age. You wore all the right clothes. You had all the right schooling choices made for you. You learned all the right verses. You, you went and did all the right things with your friends. You never said the wrong things. You drank the right things. You didn't smoke the wrong things. You married the right person. You raised your kids the right way. You went to the right church. And if you do all these things and, and connect all the dots and make all the wires work like they're supposed to, that all the circuitry of your life will end up, that, that you'll be a perfect person and life will be pretty happy. But, but maybe your parents did not choose the right schooling choice for you. Maybe you didn't marry your perfect compatible partner. Maybe you didn't make all the right choices for your kids. Maybe you did drink and smoke the wrong things and all that stuff. And, and so you have fallen, like the majority of the world, I guess, into this larger category of those living in the permissive will of God. It's okay. You know, it's like, you'll be sort of happy. Now, you're gazing at the people, like, eating steak on the veranda because they're living in God's perfect will, and you're, like, chewing on, like, a day-old chicken nugget and, you know, driving an old car. But, you know, you'll make it. The Bible doesn't present such a notion. God has written down the days for us that he intends. This is very personal. Paul will say later to Timothy, right before he is about to die, have his head lopped off for the sake of the gospel. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. That sustained Paul in the midst of great trial and should sustain us. Revelation 21, John gives us this truth. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. This is the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down to the recreated earth. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Notice this last phrase, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what David is suggesting here in Psalm 139, 16. God has great intentions for us. In fact, John will say elsewhere in Revelation that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, at least the the surety of it, And our names are written down in his book, and and we are secure. And not just our names, but our deeds. God has intentions for us. So Paul's saying in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we know verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But verse 10 is really important. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is the design of our redemption? Transformation, renewal of worship, glorifying God. The Lord knows the righteous. 
And to support this, David proclaims that he is always with us and intimately loves us. What is David's reaction to this? Verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand I awake and I am still with you. If verse 16 weren't true, that God had providential, loving intentions for us, for how we would end up, verses 17 through 18 would not be our reaction. If verse 16 said something like, hey, get it all right, cross your T's, dot your I's, live perfectly, and then God will accept you, then verses 17 through 18 would be a farce. Instead, we would say something like, I'm afraid of you all the time, please don't strike me dead. But because verse 16 proclaims to us that God is for us and has written our story down, David can proclaim in verses 17 through 18, though he knew he was often a wicked person, God, your, your thoughts to me are precious and I can't believe you, you see me this way. Most of us have a person or two in life that, that really know us pretty well. They know our inclinations, they know our proclivities, they know the things that we are likely to do. And for some reason, they love us anyway. But we don't tend to let a ton of people in like that because there's ugly parts of us still. We've already recounted some of the ugly parts of David's life. But David was not accepted because of his perfection. He was accepted because of his perfect coming Savior. And so he could proclaim, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is some of them. Do you ever just take a moment to think, maybe when you're driving on 270 or up 71 or something like that, because we live in a pretty large city, that there's just tons of people all around us and they all are living their individual lives. They're working out things in their marriage and raising their kids and going to their jobs and going to the grocery store. And, and there's, there's like two million people all around us just in our city who are doing these things. Well, multiply that by a big number and, and you have the number of people on this planet, seven something billion. And all the people that have ever lived and all the people that were ever lived, billions upon billions of people. And yet God in his infinite power and his infinite love has, has precious, innumerable thoughts toward all of us, more than the sand of the sea. So if you took every grain of sand on every seashore and every ocean floor of the world, God's loving intentions toward us are grander and greater. So because God is always with us and because he intimately loves us, such favor gives us hope and assurance. So if you are pilgriming today, if you are anxious today, if you are lonely today, if you are doubting today, if you are dying today, if you're a parent, if you're a child, if you are maligned, if you feel like an exile, your God is for you. That means that that anything that anybody says to you or about you will not be the final word. God will have the final word. How does David end it? Kind of like he began it. The Lord will vindicate and protect his people. Verses 19 through 22 are David's recognition that there are evil people all around him who don't live this way, who are not submitted to God, who will face God's wrath. This part of the psalm is imprecatory. 
David's praying for justice against his enemies because they are the enemies of God. They break the first commandment because they don't love God. They break the third commandment because they speak against God. They speak his name in vain, verse 20. They break the sixth commandment because they murder. They're, they're full of bloodlust. These are evil people, God's enemies. And David prays that God's enemies, those who stand against him with wicked pride, will be struck down. And David ends in verses 23 and 24 and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So hear me carefully. Though David rested in alien righteousness, which was not his own, this didn't mean that David just stayed where he was. Because the righteousness of another would be credited to him, that allowed him to lead a life of introspection and even repentance. So here's the idea. God, you have made me your own, and I am not yours because I'm perfect. You are with me wherever I go. You have intimate, loving intentions for me every day of my life, and I will be more than okay, and I can exult and rest in this knowledge. And yet, you have saved me for your glory. You have rescued me for your purposes. So keep changing me. Keep taking away the things that won't thrill me, that don't please you, and replace them with things that actually will bring me satisfaction and will bring glory and honor to your name. This psalm is for all of us and probably touches us today in different kinds of ways. If you're struggling today with doubt, this psalm is for you. If you are struggling today with guilt, this psalm is for you. If you are struggling today because of enemies, this psalm is for you. And as the entirety of the scriptures teach us, God will have the final word. He will take care of his people. He will keep covenant with us. We can rest in this confidence. Let's pray.